It's time for our regularly scheduled segment. Joining us now, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, it's Michael Mulligan. Michael, morning. Welcome to Legally hey. Speaking. How you doing? I'm doing great. Always good to be here. All right. What is on the agenda for you and I today? Uh, the first case on the agenda today deals with the issue of who does and who does not pay property tax. Um, and it, it's a bit more complicated than I think many people would think. Um, first of all, we're all, you know, we're used to discussing property taxes that are imposed by municipalities, right? That process is going on right now in various municipalities. Uh, but don't think that you can uh, uh, avoid property taxes by simply getting out of all the municipalities. They've thought of that. There's no escape. Uh, we, we have in uh, British Columbia an act called the Rural Area Taxation Act, uh, which provides for the taxation of uh, pro real property uh, that's not in any municipality at all. So there's no getting around it uh, that way. You can't just uh, get far enough away. Uh, and the particular issue uh, that uh, was just dealt with uh, in court uh, by the B.C. Supreme Court was an appeal concerning whether uh, there should be uh, taxation applied to a 31-acre island located just off of uh, Schwartz Bay. It's a uh, island uh, assessed at being worth $8.5 million. It's called uh, Knapp Island, K-N-A-P-P -P Island. Hmm. Uh, and the particular issue there is that uh, that act that I mentioned, that the Rural Area Taxation Act, provides a number of exceptions to who can avoid paying any property tax. Uh, and the exemptions are similar, but not exactly the same as the exemptions which exist in the community charter, uh, which exempts a bunch of uh, uh, categories of uh, property from paying any property tax in a municipality. Uh, and that act, by the way, is quite interesting, what we've chosen to exempt. Like, we've exempted some things which you would say, yeah, that kind of is obvious. Like, you know, buildings owned by the municipality itself. They don't have to pay themselves tax. That would be a, a ridiculous process. We've also exempted things like hospitals don't have to pay property tax. Yeah, that probably makes sense. Everyone's using those, a public facility. Other unusual things, though, include fruit trees are exempt. Hmm. So you don't pay property tax based on increased value created by fruit trees. Hmm. We've also uh, oddly exempted what amounts to things like bomb shelters. <laughs> so if you construct uh, something designed to provide protection either for people or, frankly, domestic animals, not farm animals, in the event of an emergency within the meaning of the Emergency and Disaster Management Act, no tax on the cost of that. So if you want to have a super deluxe underground bomb shelter for you and your dog, you're in good shape. Your property taxes can't go up thanks to that exemption under uh, the community charter. Waiting for some that person to make the, their whole house the bomb shelter, but yes. Correct. There's going to be some shack above ground <laughs> and then a palatial yep. mansion below ground. No property tax. Just don't get a farm animal in there as long as it's for you and your domestic animals. You're in good shape. Absolutely. Uh, that's right. So you might want to redesign that house. Uh, uh, and so uh, one of the other exemptions that exists in the community charter uh, and has a similar provision in that uh, act that deals with uh, uh, rural property, uh, is an exemption for religious buildings. Hmm. That's really interesting. The, the language is different for that exemption in the community charter from the uh, uh, areas outside of a municipality. They're similar, uh, but not quite the same. Uh, now, I should say on both fronts, that does raise, a, I think, a really interesting public policy question people should think about, which would be, 
should we be, as a matter of public policy, exempting, I mean, community charter exempts things like uh, buildings set apart for public worship and the land on which the building stands. Uh, and there's the similar exemption exists in that uh, for rural areas. But one of the things people should just think about, of course, is that when municipalities are setting their mill rate, like their tax rate, they kind of figure out how much money they need, and then they set the tax rate accordingly. And if you exempt a bunch of things like fruit trees and bomb shelters from having to pay tax, well, that means everyone else's tax rate is higher, right? Um, And so in Canada, of course, we have a constitutional right to freedom of conscience and religion, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But... Part of that includes a freedom from being compelled to do religious things, right? Hmm. And here, given how the legislation works, uh, you are effectively compelled to subsidize uh, buildings for public worship. Whether you like it or not, whether you agree with the religion or not, whether you're a member of any religion or not, you're subsidizing them. That's what's going on, right? The same public services are being consumed, and if you don't tax them, it's going to come out somewhere. Just like if you don't tax bomb shelters, everyone else's taxes are just a little bit higher. So that's something people should think about generally. Now, with all that background, the particular issue with respect to the $8.5 million island uh, near Schwartz Bay uh, involved whether that island amounted to a, quote, place of public worship, close quote, Uh, which is the language used in that Rural uh, Area Taxation Act. Uh, And it was an interesting state of affairs. The uh, island itself uh, was uh, owned by uh, the uh, spouse or partner of a Shinto priest. Hmm. Uh, And uh, that person, the partner, had owned that uh, island uh, for some time, going back uh, more than 20 years. Uh, And the uh, Shinto priest and his partner uh, had for many years lived on uh, Salt Spring Island, uh, where they had a, a, a facility there, uh, which was exempt from uh, taxation. Uh, and it, uh, that uh, area on Salt Spring Island was called uh, Brightwoods, uh, and it was exempt. It, inclu- it was a seven-and-a-half-acre site, involved meeting rooms and smaller rooms and a sacred forest and walking paths and a shrine, and nobody lived there, right? Hmm. And so that... You know, fell within fell within that exemption under the community charter, so it didn't pay any tax. Well, they decided to shut down that facility and decommission it in 2021 and move to this island. Uh, the island uh, had facilities on it uh, which uh, are uh, related uh, to religious practices, um, and there's there was evidence about. Uh, the particular religion, which uh, includes things like uh, trees being of particular importance to it, Hmm. uh, encourages uh, prayer practices, seated or walking uh, together or guided or not, uh, and uh, it encourages a relationship with nature. And there were things built on the island which were designed to facilitate all of that, walking trails and buildings and water treatment facilities and various things. Yes. uh, and so when the couple moved there, they applied for the exemption under that uh, the terms of the uh, uh, act. And they said, okay, well, uh, you know, this is uh, now uh, our area uh, for uh, public worship. Uh, and so therefore, we wish to not pay any tax on it, just like we didn't pay any tax on Salt Spring Island. And the facility there, they shut down. Uh, the challenge became, uh, first of all, at the uh, first level of assessment about that, the Property Assessment Appeal Board, they looked at, well, was this really an area for public worship? Um, 
And they point out that, for example, for the last 20 years, all the same improvements existed on the island, but they were for private use, right? Guests could be invited there. I guess the owners could go there if they wished. Uh, And they pointed out that the claim transition from private um, worship to public worship would not be apparent to anyone who was sailing past the island. Nothing changed. And, for example, they pointed out uh, that in large type, there was a big sign at the only way you could get to the island saying private harbor <laughs> stuck up there at the only access point. That is not compelling piece of evidence when you're trying to argue that this is a pub area for public worship. There's no other way to get to the island. Uh, and so they Whoops. didn't succeed. Whoops. I knew we forgot <laughs> something. We should have taken down the sign. Um, And so the board found that the principal use of the improvements were for private worship, not public worship, because there was just no way somebody could conclude that they could go there, right? I guess it would be interesting if somebody did show up there and tried to use the trails for the intended purpose, what the response would be, but there was no evidence about that. Uh, And so the appeal to the B.C. Supreme Court was an appeal based, and I must say they didn't disagree with those factual findings. I guess it's pretty hard to disagree with. Obviously, there's a sign there, and you know there just wasn't a disagreement about those things. Yeah. Uh, but they made an argument uh, premised on a, a principle that the Supreme Court has talked about when interpreting um, statutes. Uh, through the and the concept there is there should be a presumption against discrimination uh, when consider and when you're interpreting. Well, what does something mean, right? Mm. You, you should have a non-discriminatory uh, interpretation of things so that people are treated the, the same way, oh, right? People in the okay. same fashion should be treated the same way. And so their argument amounted to, well, look, uh, you know, this facility we had for some 20 years on Salt Spring Island, uh, that that was sort of the equivalent. We really were moving our operation from there to the, the island. Uh, and so, therefore, the island ought to be treated the same way and that it would be, uh, uh, you know, you should not uh, discriminate between these two facilities. That, that was really the essence of the argument. Um, it did not succeed <laughs> uh, in the B.C. Supreme Court on the judicial review. They found that that finding, given the particular circumstances here, including, by the way, the couple lived on the island, right? They, they weren't living uh, at the uh, facility that used to exist on Salt Spring Island. This was their new residence, right? Mm. They moved there. Yeah. There was a house I think a couple of other places people could stay who were invited uh, uh, guests who got past the sign. Uh, and so they, they found that that, it, that principle really didn't uh, have any application here uh, and that this wasn't an area for public worship. And so they uh, they are going to need to pay tax on the $8.5 million assessed value of the private island. Uh, but again, the big policy thing to think about is that what should be exempted should uh, areas for public worship be exempted at all, because that does uh, impose a burden uh, on people that aren't using those things. And it's sort of dissimilar to some of the other exemptions uh, that you would say, well, like a hospital or the, you know, the municipal yard or the uh, you know city hall or something, right? You would say, well, this is just sort of a facility for everyone, right? Uh, you know, the uh, as I said, the uh, concept of freedom of religion means that you also have a freedom from being forced to participate in something. Hmm. Uh, and here, whether you like it or not, all across the province of British Columbia, whether you're in or outside of municipality, um, you are compelled to financially subsidize places of public worship. Uh, so I hope people think about whether that's appropriate or not. But in any case, uh, that won't be an issue with respect to the uh, the island out by Schwartz Bay.
Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally Speaking will continue right after this. Legally Speaking continues on CFAX 1070. Joined with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Up next, Michael, it says here, a forestry company trying to diversify into, does that say cryptocurrency? That is a hard right turn for being a forestry <laughs> company now, isn't it? <laughs> that is. That is. Yeah. How did it go? So, not well. Oh. <laughs> so you're exactly right. This is a case involving a forestry company that decided it wanted to, quote, diversify, close quote, uh, into cryptocurrency mining and not in a small way. Hmm. Uh, the uh, forestry company, uh, which interestingly uh, uh, claimed that it was doing so in partnership with the First Nation, and that becomes interesting in this judgment, mm-hmm. um, wished to uh, construct uh, large facilities uh, data centers uh, in northern British Columbia uh, to be used for the purpose of cryptocurrency mining. Interesting. Uh, and to do so, they needed power, a lot of power. Yep. Um, and they filed an application to get hooked up to BC Hydro, which you can do. Um, and uh, BC Hydro has, uh, broadly speaking, a monopoly over the provision of electrical uh, power in British Columbia. And uh, so the starting point would be that if you need a hookup for electricity, uh, they've got to provide it. Otherwise, your you know, house or business is going to be pretty dark and uh, not working so well. Now, if you uh, do that, you do have an obligation to pay for uh, system infrastructure that's only for you know for your sole benefit. So if you need some thick wires or a new transformer or poles put in or whatever, you can be on the hook for paying for it. But um, what happened here uh, is that uh, the uh, Lieutenant Governor and Council, BC government, uh, issued an order in council uh, back in 2022 uh, directing uh, that uh, the uh, BC Hydro uh, stop hooking up cryptocurrency mining companies uh, to the power system. Uh, why, you might ask? Well, to give you an idea, this particular project, and there was an affidavit from the CEO of BC Hydro, indicated that the amount of power being requested here was 2.5 million megawatt hours of electricity wow. per year. And you might wonder, what is 2.5 million megawatt hours per year? Well, to provide some scope and scale to that figure, uh, the CEO indicated that BC's Hydro's nine largest customers, uh, they uh, delivered no more than 500,000 megawatt hours of electrical power to each, and the nine sites require uh, something in the order of a million megawatt hours per year. So it would be like two and a half times the amount of power used by the current nine largest customers of BC Hydro every year. There was some dispute about whether that would amount to sucking up something in the order of half of the power that would be produced by Site C. That's a lot of power. And this is for cryptocurrency. Uh, cryptocurrency mining. That's great, right. great. Uh, so <laughs> you'd have half of Site C turned into uh, power supply for the cryptocurrency mining uh, uh, venture by the forestry company. Uh, and so they were told no, uh, and uh, based on this order in council, which is what got challenged in court. Uh, and there were a couple of arguments that were made, or a few arguments were made. One argument, interesting one, was the sort of non-discrimination argument, like we talked about in the uh, moving the religious center to the uh, island by Schwartz Bay, saying, well, hey, you shouldn't discriminate against us. We're just asking for power. You know, this, uh, you know, uh, BC Hydro is a monopoly supplier of electricity in British Columbia. 
and so it's just not fair that uh, you can have an order in council just uh, singling out some particular industry saying, you know, no power for cryptocurrency mining, but we'll give power to whatever, you know, aluminum smelting or something else, right? Um, on that uh, basis, the court, you know, analyzed all of that, but ultimately concluded that this wasn't a case of uh, sort of discrimination in that legal sense. The issue here was the concern about the cost of service, which is, you know, what exactly would be implications of this enormous additional power draw uh, in terms of the uh, cost of producing that power and what that would mean. We'd have to immediately start working another uh, dam to, uh, you know, supply those needs. And so it wasn't found to be discriminatory. The other interesting argument was this one, and it's interesting in the context of um, the uh, controversy lately about uh, proposed amendments by the government to the Land Act, uh, arguing uh, that they need to be brought in uh, line with the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People uh, Act, right? Uh, and one of the other arguments the company made was, hey, uh, you didn't uh, consult uh, with First Nations before turning down this application. Yeah. Uh, and they pointed to uh, the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act and said, hey, that says you should be doing that. What's going on? You didn't consult with our proposed, with our partner here. Um, your uh, decision to turn this down uh, should be uh, struck down on the basis that you failed to consult with them. Hmm. That was an interesting argument, and it would be, I think, even be more interesting if that Land Act proposals were uh, passed. But yeah. uh, here, the judge analyzing it concluded that uh, the applicant for this review, the particular applicant was the forestry company wanting to become a cryptocurrency mining company on the side, and the applicant wasn't the First Nation. Uh, and so on that basis, uh, the judge found uh, that... Uh, uh, there just wasn't uh, enough uh, evidentiary basis here to uh, conclude that the First Nation um, was part of this or what exactly their role would be, and it wasn't them bringing the challenge to the you-can't-plug-in-here order. Um, and so the judge found that the uh, the uh, DRIPA, uh, Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act, did not was not breached uh, when the government did not consult uh, with with the proposed partner for the cryptocurrency mining facility. Uh, and so the outcome of this is uh, no extension cord uh, to the Site C dam, uh, and the forestry company will have to uh, come up with some other plan if they wish to diversify away from cutting down trees. <laughs> I'm just sitting here imagining the hardware that would require 2.5 million megawatt hours a year. It's, yeah, it's... <laughs> hilarious uh michael you might have to go to home depot get a really really thick extension cord well right? i was just thinking because i'm doing the math in my head and i'm thinking with that much computational horsepower could you actually corner global markets and make huge money it's one of those thought experiment type scale projects that i never thought anybody would actually be audacious enough to attempt or ask to attempt as it were uh we've got one yeah. more it says improper cross-examination by crown about the attractiveness of a complainant in a sexual assault case and unbound scrutiny of evidence by a judge and the result three minutes yeah i think i can do it in three minutes this is a case out of duncan and it's a sexual assault case where the uh, crowd decided to cross-examine uh the accused who testified and testified that he did not sexually assault the complainant uh and the crown embarked on a line of cross-examination about whether 
the accused thought the woman was attractive uh, and whether she was pretty. Uh, or whether she was, I, think, I don't know if you was sexy, but was cross-examining about uh, that. And the accused was left sort of stumbling over, you know, I, I don't think I should, that's not appropriate. Um, and the judge relied in part on uh, the uh, accused not saying, yes, this person was attractive, when the judge thought that the person was attractive. And so the judge, in one of the reasons for convicting the accused, was the judge concluded that they thought, they the judge, thought the uh, the uh, complainant was attractive uh, and found that the uh, accused, not acknowledging that she was attractive, uh, was an indication that he wasn't telling the truth when he said that he didn't sexually assault her. Um, very interesting <laughs> reasoning. Uh, that has been considered in other cases. The Ontario Court of Appeal uh, concluded a number of years ago that it was not appropriate for Crown to be asking questions about whether the accused thought somebody was pretty or attractive or sexually attractive, uh, and that that's not a relevant consideration to whether somebody committed a criminal act of sexual assault. Uh, and similarly, the BC Court of Appeal has cited that case and also concluded that it's not appropriate to, for example, cross-examine somebody in a sexual assault case, an accused, about their sexual orientation. Um, and the Court of Court of Appeal in British Columbia approving of that Ontario case saying you, it's not appropriate to be asking questions about whether you think the complainant is sexy um, also confirmed that it's not appropriate to, for example, ask somebody whether they're um, heterosexual or homosexual, uh, uh, for example, in the context of an allegation of sexually assaulting a child. Finding it's just not appropriate that uh, somehow you would suggest that because somebody might uh, be a particular sexual orientation is more likely they would have sexually assaulted a child. Oh. And so there's been a lot of judicial cold water poured on that line of thinking, I think quite appropriately. Oh. Uh, and so here, uh, the uh, judge's decision to, uh, first of all, allow the Crown to uh, engage in that line of cross-examination, and then in fact relying upon it, um, in deciding not to accept the accused's uh, denial that he committed the offense uh, was found on appeal to be inappropriate um, and uh, not a sound uh, basis to uh, have rejected uh, uh, his evidence and also not appropriate that the judge would be uh, using their own formulation about whether they thought the person was um, attractive or pretty. Uh, and so uh, all of that uh, led to the result that the conviction has been overturned uh, and there's been a uh, new trial ordered. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking.